Hebrews chapter 7. This morning we'll be continuing in our series on Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, and our text this morning will be found in verses 20 through 25. I'd like us to look at um, this passage beginning at verse 18, so I'll be reading verses 18 through 25 as we begin this morning. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them." Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word today, again, we ask that you'd open the eyes of our understanding. Lord, that we would um, see this truth here presented to us about Jesus, our great high priest. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. The book of Hebrews really is, as I've said before, this is the only book in the New Testament that presents Jesus as our high priest. And it is very thorough in its dealing with this subject, as we'll see as we continue to go through the next couple of chapters um, in Hebrews. But this passage in chapter 7, the whole chapter is really an exposition of Psalm 110, verse 4. And we've looked at that psalm, and it's been quoted several times in the passage that we're looking at. But I will just call your attention back to that psalm, Psalm 110 and verse 4 in particular. It says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've talked about Melchizedek. Of course, he is an Old Testament type, an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. Uh, There's a type and then there's an anti-type or the fulfillment of that type, the reality. And Melchizedek there in the Old Testament and being presented here in chapter 7, Jesus, our high priest, is the anti-type. Now we note there's been a change of priesthood. And last week we looked at verse 11 of chapter 7, where he said, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? So there's a change of priesthood. And the existence of Melchizedek, this predated the Levitical priesthood, and we saw that because Melchizedek is introduced in the Old Testament there in Genesis chapter 14. 
You know the history. We've gone over that passage where Melchizedek meets Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings there, and Abraham pays, pays Melchizedek tithes, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. <clears throat> and Melchizedek, by virtue of the um, passage there and what we read, we see that Melchizedek really was greater in his spiritual responsibility there, greater than Abraham. Not only do we see a change of the priesthood, we also see that because there's a change of priesthood, there also must be a change of the law. And that's verse 11 of Hebrews chapter, or verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 7. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. And there um, we see here that, that Jesus, the one of whom the passage in the Old Testament is speaking, the one who is made an high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he's not of the tribe of Levi. He is actually of the tribe of Judah. And so the law obviously had to change. And we will note that as we go through uh, the message today. Now, remember this. The Jews did not react well to this. This was quite a weighty matter. This was, had great significance. When you told the Jews that the priesthood of Aaron has, is through, it's over, it's done, it's been disannulled. In fact, the law has been disannulled. Now, obviously, God's moral law is still in effect, but we're talking about this in the Levitical law and their whole system of worship was a picture. It was a shadow. It was not the reality. And they, of course, believed that it was. They really thought that righteousness was by the law. We see in the book of Romans in chapter 10, chapter 9, there where Paul is talking about his concern for his brethren. They were not, um, you know, they had rejected Christ. And so they were going about trying to establish their own righteousness. And in doing so, they had not submitted themselves to the righteousness which was by faith, and which, of course, is the only righteousness that God accepts. We see the reaction of the Jews to Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7. Um, it was his last message. They stoned him. They killed him. And then also in the book of Acts, in particular, in Acts chapter 21 and verse 28, we note the response of the Jews towards Paul's preaching. What did they say? Well, Paul had come back to Jerusalem. He had taken a vow. He was coming out of the temple, and there were these people that met him. They saw him there, and they stirred up the people, and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men, men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, speaking of the temple, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. Here's what they said. He's, you know, Paul is teaching people to not circumcise their children. He's teaching them to abandon the law and all of this. Of course, it wasn't exactly as they were saying, but here you see the reaction. But there's a change, and this change in the priesthood and the change in the law has brought about a better hope. We saw this toward the end of the message last week. If we go over in chapter 7 and look at verses 18 and 19. He's just said there's been a disannulling of the commandment going before of the previous covenant. 
It has been set aside. It was weak and it was unprofitable. Now, it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the law. The law was just and holy. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. And then he addresses it again in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 in particular. He says, the law could not make men righteous. It was weak through the flesh. God's old covenant was, was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. But it could not make men perfect. The perfection was not available through the Old Testament priesthood. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, verse 11, couldn't happen that way. The blood of bulls and goats, chapter 9, chapter 10, could not cleanse away sin. It's the blood of Christ alone that can purge a person's conscience, that can actually cleanse away sin. So again, that Old Testament type was being done away because the fulfillment was here. So there's this disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof, for the law made nothing perfect. The priesthood, the perfection was not available through the priesthood. The law could not make any man perfect. However, it says, but the bringing in of a better hope. Verse 19, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And that hope is the same hope of which he was speaking at the end of chapter 6. You note at the end of chapter 6, where he says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. What were those two immutable things? They were the two promises that God gave with an oath. The first to Abraham, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. The promise given to Abraham that God gave with an oath. And the second unchangeable thing was the promise that he gave to his son. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And these two, these two immutable things, or unchangeable things, are there to give us hope. And what was the hope set before us? Verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus, made and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The great hope that we have is that God has, by an oath, established His Son Jesus to be a perpetual, a permanent, perfect high priest. So the question I ask you today is, who is your priest? Who is your priest? You cannot have access to God without a priest. And that is the clear message of Scripture from cover to cover. You cannot have access to God without a priest. In the Old Testament, the access was through the Aaronic line, through the Levitical priesthood. But now we have Jesus, who is made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the only access that we have to God is through Jesus Christ. And if he is not your high priest, then you do not have a priest that can get you access to God. There are many other religions out there with priests who claim that they have some kind of access to God. But the only priesthood that God ever recognized in the Old Testament was the Levitical priesthood through Aaron. And that being disannulled, and now Jesus Christ being set up as the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and God confirming that with a note, there is no other priest. 
Every other man-made system of religion or every other man who claims to be a priest is an imposter. Now, as I said, chapter 7 is this exposition of Psalm 110, verse 4. And the apostle here in this, in this chapter, in chapter 7, is giving arguments for the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. This is, again, this is what makes Hebrews unique. It's the only New Testament epistle that presents Jesus in his role as high priest. So some of this is going to be reviewed, but I want you to look at these arguments that are being made. The first argument that was made in chapter 7 is that the order of Melchizedek is superior to that of Aaron. Remember, he's making arguments He's making arguments for the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews, speaking to Hebrews, speaking to Hebrew believers. They have been brought up in the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical system. And now he is telling them Jesus Christ is your high priest. And he has superseded the whole line of Aaron. That has been set aside. So this is heavy stuff for the Jew. So the first argument is that the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Aaron. He gives in the beginning of this chapter, he reminds us of the factual story of Abraham and Melchizedek meeting after the slaughter of the kings. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, who was a priest king, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Well, and so what does he reason? He reasons from that story. Now remember, that is such a small passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. When you read it in Genesis chapter 14, it encompasses maybe two to two, two and a half verses. That's it. But it's extremely significant. And we see the significance here in the book of Hebrews. Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then the apostle, as he writes here, he lets us know there is a great significance in Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek because from Abraham comes down the line, through, there's Isaac, and then there's Jacob, then of the sons of Jacob, there's Levi. And the sons of Levi, they are commanded by the law to take tithes of their brethren, even though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Yet he who received tithes of Abraham, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And then also we see that Melchizedek turns and blesses Abraham. And of a truth, it says without any question, the less is blessed of the better. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Jesus is made a priest after the order, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. The second argument that he makes was that the priesthood of Aaron was to be superseded by a perpetual priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And we see this. In beginning down in verse 11, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, why would there be another priestly line after the order of Melchizedek? Why would that be necessary? Well, we find here that the Levitical priesthood was inadequate. Perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Now, when we again, when we speak about perfection, what are we talking about? We're not talking about Sinless perfection, we're talking about the whole goal of the priesthood. What is the goal of the priesthood? To bring men into 
reconciliation with God. Did the did Aaron or any of his descendants as high priest, did they bring men back into a permanent state of fellowship with God? No. Once a year, they offered the blood of bulls and goats. They, were, they would offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It was symbolic. And in fact, this is not in my notes, so this is free. This is extra. Take your Bibles and go back to Romans. Romans chapter 2. This is good. It just came to mind. Sometimes these things happen when you're preaching. I don't necessarily call it inspiration, but the word I'm going to give you is inspired. So go back to Romans chapter 2. We talk about the blood of bulls and goats. It can't cleanse away sin. The Old Testament priesthood, perfection was not attainable through that. But look at Romans chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 23, he says, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who is he? Again, he is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Note what he says in the next verse. Verse 25. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare God's righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. What did God do with all those sins of the Old Testament saints? I mean, if the blood of the bulls and goats didn't cleanse them, then, and it was just a type, it was a shadow, it was an example. Well, what about all those people's sins? How do they get paid for? Well, it's exactly what he tells us here. Jesus came in the fullness of time, right at God's appointed time, he came, and his blood is effectual for the cleansing of sin. For this, and he's de- and by God doing this, God is declaring himself to be righteous, or Jesus is actually declaring the Father to be righteous, to have been forbearing or to have been looking over, passing over those sins of the Old Testament fathers. When were they paid for? At the cross. whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Speaking of the past sins, through the forbearance of God. God was forbearing. He held off. And then in verse 26 says, To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. So the cross there, Jesus is declaring God to be righteous in even setting up that system. It did not reach perfection. It did not actually cleanse away sin. And God was forbearing for the time. But here is Jesus Christ, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And His blood is sufficient to cover all those sins of the past that God was forbearing in passing over. Now, So the priesthood of Aaron was to be superseded by the perpetual priesthood of Christ Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. We see the inadequacy of the Levitical priesthood to attain perfection. But because the Levitical priesthood was to be changed, the law also had to be changed. Jesus was not descended from Levi. 
Verses 13 and 14, he was descended from the tribe of Judah. And like the description of Melchizedek in verse 3, what is it that makes Jesus different than, from all those Old Testament priests? I mean, there are several things, but the main thing here is that he has an endless life, an indestructible life. Jesus, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that is verse 16. It says, Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment or a physical requirement, but after the power of an endless life. Because the Levitical priesthood was to be changed, the law had to be changed. But the law also did not bring about perfection. It was ineffective ineffective because of the failure of men to keep it. Men could not keep the law. And there is now a better hope through which men can be reconciled to God, and that is the same hope like we mentioned there in the back in the last part of chapter 6. Now, <clears throat> this the third argument. We've seen the first two arguments. The third argument is what we're going to note today in verses 20 through 22. We're going to talk about the solemnity, the solemnity of the installation. Now, there's some big words. The solemnity of the installation of Jesus as an high priest. When I talk about solemnity of installation, let me give you an example. I'll give you a comparison here. When you graduate from sixth grade, you go into seventh grade, right? Everybody following me? And not much changes. It's really not a big deal. You just take harder classes, and but now you're in seventh grade, and you tell people, what grade are you in? I'm in seventh grade. Now, there's a difference between passing from sixth grade and seventh grade to graduating from high school or graduating from college, it's kind of a big deal. There's celebrations, unless there's a virus, of course, but there's celebrations, there's pageantry, there's you know marching and wearing of vestments and receiving some kind of diploma or certificate, and it's a big deal made. There's another illustration. Every four years, we elect, we have an election for president. When he is installed into the office, that is called the inauguration. And if you want to talk about something with solemnity and something that's a big deal, it's the inauguration of the President of the United States. Now, there's not a lot of hoopla here, but I want you to note the solemnity of the installation of Jesus Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's significant. And the significance is brought out here to let us know that the priesthood of Jesus Christ supersedes the Levitical priesthood. In verse 20, it says, And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. Verse 21, For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, 
Verse 22, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Those three verses. Now, let's note the construction of this passage. Verse 20, if you'll note in your Bible, it should be in parenthesis. Do you see that? Have your Bible? If you don't have your Bible, make sure you have your Bible next time. Parenthesis. There's a verse verse, um, 21 is parenthetical. So, Let's note that verse 20 and verse 22 will fit together. And so it says, And inasmuch as not without an oath. Now, if your Bible says he was made priest, you will notice that those words are italicized, which means they were added for clarity. They weren't there in the original language, but they've been added to aid in our understanding of what's being said. I'm going to leave those words out, and I'm going to skip the parenthetical, and let's look at what 20 and 22 say. It says, And inasmuch as not without an oath, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Here's another translation. And inasmuch as not without an oath, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Um, that word surety, surety, it means a guarantor or a guarantee. Now, our Lord's priesthood was declared with a divine oath. And I want you to notice here the significance of the oath because the author is stressing this part. He's bringing this out to show the difference. Our Lord's priesthood was declared with a divine oath. The Levitical priesthood was not accompanied with an oath. Note verse 21. Those priests were made without an oath. Not, they were made without an oath. How did Old Testament priests become Old Testament priests? Well, if your daddy was a priest and his daddy, all the way back to Aaron, if you were from the family of Aaron, if you could trace your lineage through Aaron through the male side, then you were a priest. Had nothing to do with how spiritual you were, how good or bad you were, and there were some bad priests. It was all based on lineage, the law of a carnal commandment or physical requirement. And that's how they became priests. You know, you can imagine a a little Jewish boy watching the, what was going on there at the temple and thinking, man, I'd like to be a priest. You know, and, and oh, what, I, I'll, I tell you what, I'll go to school, I'll, I'll study to be a priest. No, that would not be possible. It was something that you were by genetics. It was a lineage requirement. So here, the Levitical priesthood was not accompanied with an oath. They became priests by divine decree. Exodus chapter 40, back in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 40, there, towards the end of that book, God says this in, regarding the house of Aaron. Exodus chapter 40, verses 12 through 15. And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Wash them with water, and thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments, and anoint him, and sanctify him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt bring his sons, and clothe them with coats, and thou shalt anoint them, 
as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. That's it. No one else. It was to be through their generations, through their lineage. The priests were selected by the word of God. But here, Jesus was the only priest ever selected by God with His oath. And so our Lord's priesthood was declared with a divine oath. And the dignity of the position is proportional to the solemnity of the appointment. You say, wow, that's really impressive. I didn't, I didn't come up with that on my own. That's a quote. The dignity of the, of the position is proportional to the solemnity of the appointment. You know, being appointed ambassador to another country would be pretty important. But that's nothing compared to the dignity of being inaugurated, the president of the United States. So again, the office, the office there, and we see the solemnity of the appointment. Jesus' appointment to the priesthood was God saying that he would be and confirming it with an oath. And God did not do that very often. Now, Jesus, it says here, is made a surety of a better covenant. Verse 22, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. I am I'm coming to not like that word testament because it's, it, it's covenant, and it can be either way. But, and it's not that it's a bad word, it's just that when you're memorizing Scripture and it keeps switching it on you and you're trying to quote it accurately, are you saying testament or co covenant? Which one is it here? They're the same thing. And so here, he is a surety of a better covenant or that testament. Now, what is a surety? A surety is a guarantor or one who stands in the place of another, one who acts on behalf of another. One maybe who can't go and do something, so one goes and acts on his behalf. Um, we, you hear power of attorney, someone signing documents for someone who is incapacitated or unable to sign, so he signs on his behalf. So Jesus is made a surety or a guarantor of a better covenant. Under the old covenant or in the Old Testament, what happened? The, old, the high priest stood before God in the place of the people. Under the new covenant, though, Jesus Christ is the great high priest who does for man what man, man cannot do for himself. He is the one mediator between God and man. And Jesus is a better high priest who belongs to a better economy, a better covenant. Again, the Old Testament priests were selected by the Word of God. But only one priest was ever selected by God with his own oath. The installation of Jesus was greater, and the covenant is also better. And what does the oath declare? The oath declares, or the oath of God demonstrates the importance and the unchangeableness of the decree. It's not going to change. The Old Testament priesthood did change. It's been changed permanently by the installation of Jesus as a forever, a permanent, perpetual high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord swear and will not what? 
will not change his mind, will not repent. Remember another thing that he swore about in the earlier part of Hebrews. He says, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Remember when the children of Israel came up to the Jordan River the first time they were to go into the promised land and they rebelled. They sent the spies in, the spies came back, and ten of them were bad, two were good, and ten said, oh, we can't go in there, we're going to get eaten alive. And so they refused. And God said, all right, you will not enter into the promised land. You are going to wander, every one of you, until your carcasses drop in the wilderness. You're going to wander 40 years. And then what do the people do? Oh, we're sorry. We repent. We'll go. Did God change his mind? And they cried. They cried out. They were praying. They were, I mean, they were walking the aisle, repenting. They had had a change of mind. We'll go. Moses said, don't you dare go. They said, no, 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 God told us to go. We're going to go. So they went up. And what happened? They got creamed, destroyed. God swore. He says, I will not repent. God did not change his mind. And their repentance was a change of mind. It wasn't a change of heart, that's for sure, because they were actually acting in rebellion against God's decree that they were to go back and start wandering in the wilderness. But God swear He will not change His mind. And here again, we see the permanence of God's decree. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, so this is the third argument for the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, what made Jesus a better priest? What made him a better priest? And I want us to note verses 23 to 25. It says here, And they truly were many priests. Who is they? He's referring back again to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Old Testament times. He says, They truly were many priests because they were not suffered or not permitted to continue by reason of what? They died. And that was the end. You know, we have a, we have a um, system here of lifetime appointments to the, to the judiciary. Our Supreme Court justices are lifetime appointments. But praise God, they're not forever appointments. Those guys do eventually die. And sometimes we breathe a sigh of relief. Not that we rejoice in someone's death, but in their ideology, having passed off the scene, we hope for a better replacement. But here in the Old Testament, what was, what was going on? There were many priests. I read one article that says there were between Aaron and Phineas, the last priest in the Old Testament before they were in the captivity, uh, it was about... A hundred high priests. That many priests had served in the office, and I don't know how long each of them had lived. But there were many. It wasn't just one. And what sets Jesus apart? What has been mentioned over and over? What does Psalm 110 verse 4 say? It keeps pointing out the permanence. Jesus is a forever high priest. He does not change. He is not going to pass off the scene. Jesus is a priest forever. 
They truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Verse 24, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. And because of that, it says in verse 25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Because Jesus has an indestructible life, because he has an unchangeable priesthood, he is able to save those who come to him through faith. He's able to save them for how long? Eternally. Eternal salvation because of our indestructible, unchangeable high priest. And then it says here at the end of verse 25, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Whom? Those that come to God by him. Think about this. Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. He is our forever high priest. And what is he doing? He ever lives to intercede for us, to intercede to God on our behalf. Now, that ought to cause you to ask a question. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why on earth is Jesus interceding on my behalf? I thought that was all taken care of. I thought once I was saved, it was a justified, it's a done deal, I'm, I, I'm saved. Why does Jesus need to intercede on my behalf to the Father, because it says here that he ever liveth to continually intercede for those who come to God by him. Has anybody in here besides me, anybody ever wondered what that meant? I have. Well, here's what it is. I believe that this is correct. Why is it necessary for him to intercede if I am already justified? The content of his intercession is not for justification. He is not pleading that God will save me. I have been saved. I am saved. But there is other intercession that he does. Can anybody think, can you think of any other place in Scripture where Jesus is interceding? John 17 Jesus' intercessory prayer. He is praying for not only His disciples, but He's also praying for those who would believe based on their report. He's praying for us. Go back, and I want you to keep your finger here in Hebrews, but go back and turn to John chapter 17. I want you to see this, because I think this is very interesting. I've always thought, why is Jesus still interceding? Why do we even need this priest? Because, I mean, we're saved, we're justified. It's kind of like, okay, here we are. Why would there need to be made intercession on our behalf? Note John chapter 17. And who is he praying for? He's praying for those that the Father has given him. Verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now, 
In verse 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Here he is interceding, that they may be one as we are, praying for their unity. Verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. And he says, except for Judas, talked about Scripture being fulfilled. Look at verse 13, Now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What is Jesus requesting of the Father? He's asking for our, us to have the joy that He has. He's praying for our joy. Okay? Not only that, He goes on. Verse 14, I have given them Thy word, and thy wor- I've given them Thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Jesus is interceding for us, praying that the Father would keep us from evil, that we'd be one as they are one, that we would have his joy. What else? In verse 17, he says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He's praying for our sanctification. And so here is Jesus, our indestructible, eternal high priest, who is able to, and because of his indestructible life, he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. One other, one other passage in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, in particularly verse 32. Jesus predicts that Peter is going to deny him. And in verse 31, the Lord says to Simon, or to Peter, He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But note verse 32. It says here, Jesus said, But I have what? I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I am praying for you. I am praying the Father that he will strengthen your faith. Jesus is praying for Peter there individually. You know, when Jesus prays and intercedes before the Father, it's personal. Think about that. Jesus is interceding for you by name. There before God the Father, by name. And any prayer, any answer to prayer that we experience is a credit to what? To the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. He presents our request to the Father. He is interceding on our behalf, and He does this continually. 
unchangeably. Do you think about that? That's amazing. And they say, well, well, how can Jesus do that? Because of all the millions of Christians and all these people, I mean, we're just one of so many. How could it be personal? Come on. We're speaking about the infinite God here. And here, Jesus, this illustration here in Luke chapter 22. Peter, I have prayed for you specifically that your faith fail not. And Jesus, let me tell you something, Jesus' prayers are answered. God is glorified in answering the prayers of his son. Jesus is glorified when we make requests, we make our requests known. When we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. What does it mean when we say in Jesus' name? Is it just like the the tagline? If you say it this way, you get your prayer request answered. What does it mean? No, it means that our prayers we recognize are going by way of our great high priest who is interceding on our behalf. He is the surety or the guarantor of this better covenant. Because he lives forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. And so here in this chapter, again, what's going on, the arguments are being made for the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. They're being argued, they're being put out here to Hebrew believers. You need to understand this. That old system has been set aside. It has been done away. And because the priesthood has been done away, the law also which was ineffective. There is now a new covenant. We have a new hope, a better hope, a better high priest, a better high priest that God has ordained. And remember that He is interceding for us unceasingly. What a blessing. We'll continue next week and look towards the end of this chapter and talks more about this. But um, what a blessing. And listen, again, this whole chapter is expounding on such a small verse. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But here, and, and, and thank God for this book. If we didn't have this, that really wouldn't be very meaningful to us. But there's great significance in the fact that Jesus is our high priest. And he's not from the line of Levi. He is of a completely different order. But an order that God ordained, of which Melchizedek was what? Well, it says he was made like unto the Son of God. Remember, it wasn't Jesus was made like to Melchizedek. No, Melchizedek was was made like to the Son of God. He was a type of what was to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he is. And in particular, as we've been looking at this passage, Lord, we see that he is by by the oath of God the Father, he is a priest forever, an unchangeable priesthood. And Lord, he lives still to intercede on our behalf. And Lord, thank you so much for the advocate that we have 
Lord, we thank you that we have access to the Father by way of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that each one here today would consider that question, who is your high priest? Lord, we thank you that you are able to save all of those who come unto God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way of salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our love for you and our understanding of your word. Lord, that as your blood has cleansed us from sin, that we might live lives that bring honor and glory to your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.